it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices. It helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, CEO of Strata, talks with Ben Gallen, PT, and the owner of Evolution Rehab Group. Paul and Ben talk through why cash-based practices aren't the end-all be-all, the future of PT, value-based care, and hybrid care, and why most clinic owners must better understand cash flow. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. I entered my career at the beginning of an end. I entered my career at the end of the Balanced Budget Act being passed, which in the late 90s was kind of the end of one era of physical therapy. So much so that legitimately sitting in our orientation at school, we were still there. I think, our, you know, some people saw their parents there, or their spouses there. Like it was still like during that phase of orientation of PT school, they said, if any of you want out right now, we will give you a full refund. Because they knew that, like, the word had come out that the bleakness of physical therapy post-Balanced Budget Act was going to be so disturbing. They were so worried about people getting jobs after that they didn't want the besmirching name of, like, you took $100,000 from me and here I am, like, you know, unemployed and homeless. So I came into the era where, like, the 80s, you know, were one thing, the 90s were kind of the tail end of that, and then things drastically changed. And when I entered, it was like a, a hard time because Medicare drastically changed some rules. And then usually where Medicare goes, the commercials follow. But at some point in the career, I said, you know, this is interesting, but insurances are changing where you used to have things on legacy contracts and you used to have things where you'd buy out a practice because their contracts with United were so good that you're buying that contract. You weren't necessarily buying the clinic. You almost didn't care. You know, they had a Kincom machine in the corner. Who cares? They're getting 186 bucks per visit on the workers' comp, 220 on uh, some United Healthcare legacy contract. Let me buy that, and that was kind of the gig. What they did, sneakily so, is they put in some middlemen, you know, by the names of like in that area when I was working up in DC, it was Mamsey. Nowadays, it's Ash and it's Optum being like the two biggest kind of people. One call on the workers' comp side, and uh, between them taking at least 50% of the profits of physical therapy, that of the revenue that you'd get per visit, between MPPR, which sounded like nothing we really understood. It was like, ah, there's MPPR things coming in under next year. And no one broke it down and said, oh, by the way, that's going to be about a 28% payment reduction right off the bat. Like right off the bat, if you bill four units a day, each patient, you got about 28% just gone. No, like no one processed that. It didn't make sense. We didn't know what it was. All the pre-off garbage that we didn't have most of my career. So all of a sudden, I was like, wow, like I'm doing the math here, and I'm seeing that in South Florida, which is not a haven for good insurance payers. So I can't say it stood for the rest of the country, though. You know, there's areas of the country, what happens there eventually, ha- you know, California kind of leads it. The garbage happens there as far as how terrible payers are and things that change and things that also opportunity for change, and then start spreading around the country in different areas where there's some areas of the country that are the last to experience certain things. In South Florida, Florida in general is usually one of the first to get kind of these waves of the ashes and the optums. I was doing the math and I'm like, wow, like what I want to earn per hour, if I were to earn that and only see even two patients per hour, which I know plenty of therapists, oh my gosh, it's two patients per hour. 
I mean, I'll be frank, I saw 38 patients per day when I was working at unnamed chain clinic up in Northern Virginia that I mentioned before per day when I first graduated. But yes, you know, even at two patients per hour, if I wanted to get paid what I wanted to get paid per hour or pay my staff what they wanted to get paid, it was unsustainable. So much so this was before COVID, before labor shortage, before inflation. And I was doing the math and I'm like, the world as we know it as physical therapy is going to implode on itself within the next five years. And this was somewhere around like 2018. And I'd say if I had to say it all over again, I'd say somewhere maybe in the next seven years if I went back in time. But I saw what was happening in primary care and I was actually very envious of the models they were doing with value-based care. And I knew plenty of primary care physicians who were making much less than people think primary care you know, physicians made. And then I saw them all moving over and adopting towards value-based care. And then I started seeing someone making half a million to a million dollars a year being a primary care physician, which is even today pretty unheard of for most primary care physician. But they did it in a manner where they said, I'm going to stop this nonsense with you know, letting a contract drive how I get reimbursed and I'm going to dictate terms by taking on more risk. And I was very envious of like why that world didn't exist in, at least in Florida, in physical therapy. And I consulted nationally, so I was pretty familiar what was going on nationally. And the closest that anything or anyone was coming to it at the time was just capitated markets, where it's like, here's 600 bucks, do what you can with a patient. I charge more than that in five visits. What do you mean do what I can with a patient? Because I was used to seeing patients three visits a week, four units per visit. And I know today there's still plenty of chains who like their entire metrics are, did you do four units, four good units? per patient three times a week? Do you want a list to show all the patients who are not coming three times a week? What do you want to do about the patients not coming three times a week? And then pre-COVID, I was like, you know, patients are starting to get these high deductible, high co-insurance plans where they may have $7,000, $10,000, $15,000 before anything kicks in. And we are now dealing with a cash-based client, whether we like it or not, whether we officially moved to a cash-based practice or didn't. I took my clinic out of network Um, somewhere around then because I just couldn't afford network rates. But then it was a matter of educating a patient between if you go in network to unnamed chain down the road, you will be one of seven patients at a time and you'll have a minimal copay, maybe $25 copay. If you come here, I can't give you $25. We'll work out some plan. Maybe it's $75, maybe it's $80. But this is what you're going to get for that $80. And hopefully if the consumer knew enough about the difference between the two clinics, they'd be like, Ben, I'll pick yours for this because I know I don't need to come as much. So even though I'm paying more, maybe I could get done in four or five visits what they're going to have me do for 12 or 15 or you know, the magical 20 visits that Optum authorizes also to get used. And the Medicare Advantage plan pays for 20 magically. And 20 is the number that everyone needs. No one needs 21 and no one needs 20 and no one needs 19. And I just said, there has to be a way out of this. And I don't want to be a part of like that world anymore. But, but that being said, I'd say one of the big things I see on your podcast and just kind of in general in the world of physical therapy, like you go to these conferences, I, I went to CSM and PPS, um, everyone's preaching cash-based clinics. You know, that's kind of the, I don't want to say fad, because I think it's just the reality of where they had to go to, whether they wanted to be or not. But it's definitely a big topic of conversation. I lament that. And I don't think it's because I'm old and stuck in my ways. I really think it's a... I look at something like, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, CVS or Walgreens and what they're worth and what they do today. And I look at, say, GNC. And maybe I'll use that as my analogy for cash-based practice for staying mainstream covered benefits in someone's healthcare benefits. And I say benefits and not insurance, because I think insurance, unfortunately, these days means if you catastrophically are injured or hurt, just like car insurance will kick in and do something. 
But if you just have a ding on your car, you're not going to go use your car insurance to get that ding done. Um, I think most people's insurance plans in the realm of physical medicine and rehab is insurance and not benefits. But there are still some benefit plans around, especially if you get into employers or Medicare Advantage and Medicare, that I think that PTs will look back as probably a big mistake if we focus too much attention on becoming a cash-based practice and not trying to remain in a mainstream benefit-covered world. And again, I don't know if it's your exact podcast or what, but I heard plenty of people talking about cost of customer acquisition. You know, terms, I'd hope physical therapists or anyone in healthcare would never even understand the term of cost of customer acquisition. Right. You know, when I was working for my first 20 plus years, I never once calculated cost of customer acquisition, maybe naively so. But I don't think most healthcare providers, including hospitals, go, what is my cost of customer acquisition? It exists. It existed 20 years ago. I mean, there was a cost of customer acquisition. But when you're running a cash-based practice, the advertising and differential marketing you have to do, I, I would hope people are running that practice truly do know their cost of customer acquisition. It matters because it matters in how you start. Well, how do I set pricing? Well, first of all, what is your monthly burn? Second of all, what is your cost of customer acquisition? Third of all, what do you want to make? Put those three together. I can tell you what you could start charging patients. Like a restaurant. Well, I'm going to charge, you know, I watch a, a, you know restaurant makeover shows. and like, I'm just going to charge $8.99. Well, how much was your food cost? How much is your labor cost? How much is your rent and overhead? And you should be making a 50% margin or more or 100, you know. So this is how much your food costs. You can't just arbitrarily say it costs $8.99 for this steak sandwich. Lo and behold, it should be $14.99. And then it's a matter of, are you attracting the right customer to come in and pay $14.99? So I don't even know how I got on this topic. I I, I will talk too much if, I, if I'm left on topic. You were talking about uh, how cash-based practices are sort of like the new thing. Yes, and how I lament that. You didn't ask me yet, well, Ben, what did you do about it? There we go. That's where I'm going. I'll say I did two things about it. One of them is I had a unique background where I I was heavily involved in outpatient orthopedics, but I was also heavily involved in just about every setting known to man in physical therapy in one way or another as an owner, administrator, rehab director, staff employee. uh, I'd say everything but pediatrics. So no school setting, no pediatrics. But if you say wound care, yes, check. Sniff, check a long-term care check, hospital check, ICU check, home care, very much check, and outpatient, very much check. And I saw how these business, you know, usually if you figure out how they get paid, you can figure out how to navigate the world well. So if you understand the payment model, you can understand like how to make it operationally efficient, how to make it clinically effective, how it plays with other people in the sandbox. I saw what home healthcare was doing to itself. And I saw that home healthcare is pricing itself out of value-based contracts. And I saw through some of my other lives, I saw companies like Hospital at Home or even before that, let's just take even just population health management initiatives. If they wanted to deal with patients in the home, they stopped going through home health care companies. I'm like, well, if that's the company who has a license to do that, like, why wouldn't they just go through it? But it's inherently, there's just so much bloat in a home health care company that can't deliver effective, cost-effective care. When I say that, are there some out there? Yes. Of course, there's some that are bending the rule, I'm saying, but I'd say a large majority can't deliver cost-effective care. So I started going around saying, hey, I'm going to teach you, home healthcare company, how to open up your Part B number. So I know outpatient therapy really well. I know home care really well. You have the staff. You have the referrals. You don't have the software, but I can teach you with policies and procedures. I can take on your billing. I can take on everything. Let me open up your Part B number so you can start taking care of these value-based contracts that other people want you to do that you don't understand. And as I got more in that world, 
I started saying like, wow, there's this other licensure out there called an outpatient rehab facility or for a rehab agency, not a core for other reasons. And I said, wow, that, you know, this licensure kind of allows you to do the same thing with a facility license as a Part B section of the home care agency does. It's got some drawbacks that are uh, not as good as having your home care agency license, some perks and benefits, but it allows for that. I can go in the home. I can bill Part B for this. And if the home care agencies don't want to do this, because I tried in Palm Beach County for two and a half years, I'll go do it. And I'll go to the hospitals and say, I understand that you're in a CJR bundle. And I understand that you need to cut costs. And I understand that post-acute care costs between a home health care company and outpatient therapy is $4,500 of your $24,000 bundle. I know that that's being done because they're working in these silos and they want to get their staff paid and they want to get themselves paid. So they're not being malicious, but they're just operating as they operate. And that's your post-acute care costs. So we're talking 25, 30% of your bundle is post-surgery. And what can I do to affect that change? You send your cases to me. I'll see them in the home under Part B, and I'll do that for a fraction of the cost. Legitimately, anywhere from 2000 less per episode of care. And typically, when I'm done with them, they don't even need to go to outpatient therapy. Some people started listening. Some people started understanding it. I started getting referrals directly from hospitals to send therapists into the house under Part B. Um, I parlayed that into a very value-based-minded primary care group, some ACO directives. And this primary care group started getting involved in direct contracting with Medicare, which is now morphed into ACO reach model. And I said, you're losing a lot of money every month your doctors are referring to home care for therapy-only episodes. And I can steer that to Part B in the home. And this is the advantage of Part B in the home versus just home care episode. And if they don't need nursing, you really should be sending them to me and I'll get your cost down dramatically. And it took like a good year and a half kind of started during COVID. So we had COVID to worry about more than anything else. But I got them down to like less than, I don't know, maybe 90% of their home care referrals that were therapy only stopped. And they're all coming to me, kind of going back to my premise of going within the benefit program and not like my cost of customer acquisition is zero. Like I haven't paid a marketer. I haven't paid for a referral. The advertising I make, I make it on PowerPoint and then send it to uh, the UPS store to print or Staples or something. So you know, my website I made on Wix in an hour. You probably can tell. Yeah. But I'm not looking at acquiring customers through direct consumer methodology. Therefore, I don't need to worry about that expensive brand. You know, my business cards I did on like Instaprint or something where you get 500 for like $2. I use Jotform to create some intake stuff and some signatures captured at the, at the house. And I have one administrative assistant and myself running that company. And we do, I mean, upwards of 350 visits a week and all through covered benefits, 100% through covered benefits. Now, can every single person replicate this in the country? You know, some people are Luna, like a lot of their business models now running on a similar model. But I'm not saying everyone should be a, a benefit driven in the home therapy company. I don't think that's the answer to everything. But could someone say, I'm going to use this mindset, stop worrying about the cash basis and start thinking, how can I show that therapy is a value? And I love, 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 love uh, that the APTA came out with everything they came out with in the last two months, which is how physical therapy is the value add. Not that how do we compete with ourselves and the other clinics to say, well, I could shave $10 off here. I could shave $50 off here. They came out with a campaign to show like carpal tunnel surgery versus physical therapy. You save $15,000 with the same outcomes. Knee meniscus erosion. And they, they had a litany of, things up there that they did some good research to show 
There's plenty of patients who end up in surgeries or alternative schemes. And if you were able to just get to the top of that funnel, who's directing benefits, whether that's an employer, a TPA, uh, the payer itself, and say, physical therapy is the value-based option. I'll give you a quick side note on this. When I contracted with a DCE to do this, part of the DCE is they ask everyone to take a haircut right off the top. You know, take a 15% haircut on the money paid to you by Medicare. And in exchange, when these checks get written at the end of the year for our shared savings, you'll get some upside shared savings, potentially. A lot of the vendors are not included in the upside savings. I was not going to be included in the upside savings. And I said, no, 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 no. I am the value-based option. I'm not taking a haircut of 15%. In fact, I'd like to charge you over 100% of Medicare because I am already saving you per episode $2,500 at $3,000 per episode of care. Why am I going to take off another 10 or 15% for you? Like I, I am the savings. I am the 50% haircut off of home health care. And I think therapists, if they get in the game of I can do that for less, which the game of that is like I'll get a phone call in my old clinic from Align Networks, who's now one call, or and they'd say, hey, your neighbors are now doing therapy for $48 per visit. And I'm not making up these numbers. This is actual numbers we were quoted. Um, we were only getting paid, I think, $56 per visit. If you come down to $48, we'll put you on some special tier where we'll give you more volume. And it was like, what a race to the bottom. I can't believe any of us are doing it for $58, let alone $46 or $47. But, you know, out of desperation, necessity, whatever, they're doing it. So then the question is, if you say no, do you stop getting patients? And Optum was down to, you know, $55 per visit. I'm sure if you called up Optum and said, I'll take 52, you would start getting more patients. But at one point, are we just racing ourselves to the bottom to just say, I could deliver? It has to be garbage care. I mean, how can you deliver anything but garbage care at, you know, $35 per patient that some of these plans are wanting you to take versus what about we flip this script and let me work as a value add in the musculoskeletal, the MSK space. Let me prove my point as a value-based ad. And I'd love to see more attention and effort by physical therapy to bring this really full circle to come back being part of the benefit program, not just insurance and demonstrating our value and worth to both the patients, um, the providers, the people in that ecosystem, the payers, and get to a point where we're doing like these primary care docs who are now doing really well and seeing less patients per day. I'm not saying physical therapists could be making a half a million or a million dollars a year. We're not kind of the gatekeeper top of the funnel, but just talking off the top of my head, could we potentially be a gatekeeper for patients with MSK pain instead of going to their primary care, instead of going to urgent care, could we potentially have a business model where they come into our site first because research shows they come into PT first. I want to say something like 70% of all patients who go into a PT first model never end up seeing a specialist. So imagine the savings immediately. No injections, no imaging, no opioids, no prescriptions at all. And I think of the 30% who do see a specialist, usually it's a one-stop specialist, maybe for some prescription or something for pain relief, and then get converted back to go to, to PT. And if we could control not all MSK, I believe in the right provider at the right time, and some patients absolutely need to go to urgent care or to an orthopedic surgeon immediately. Some patients may need to go for like CBT for just pain issues that are not going to be treated just with like an MSK program that's purely uh, physical therapy. But a good chunk of patients, should they come to PT as a gatekeeper, that's value add. And now the question is, like, what can I get paid for that? Instead of just getting paid on my units per visit, is there some sort of episodic bundle I can open up with a payer and say, you're a low back pain patient? Give me 2000 bucks and I'll treat them really well. It doesn't mean I'm going to see them in clinic for everything. I'm going to take advantage of technology and remote monitoring and telehealth. 
Like, I would love to see in three, four, five years us stop talking about cash payments and focusing that like 80% of our payment models are coming in this methodology, not I'm out of network and I'm cash. Yeah. I'm not trying to switch gears here, but just I'm curious if we take that, what you just talked about. So I think you know this, but I'll just say it anyway. It's pretty rare to see a, you know, practicing therapist actually understand the business of PT as well as you do. I'm not trying to blow smoke at you. That I think you would agree that's sort of a fact. <laughs> More than others. Well, yeah. And I think that we kind of all generally know why that is the case, right? Like business acumen is not something that is taught in the schools. And, and even if it was, you know, it's, as you know, business is way more than just what you learn in school. So if we were to go brass tacks, you know, it's, it's 2023, almost 2024 now. Uh, let's say you had a time machine and, and somehow we could get, you know, young Ben here to the future and say, Ben, young Ben, you're going to start your career over. What advice do you give him? Like what? Because one thing you said that I think is very triggering to a lot of people these days is this conversation that's happening now between cash-based or not cash-based. It's discussed as if it's this binary topic when it's much more complicated than that. So I'll get to your answer probably by peeling back some layers. Okay. If I were to go purely cash-based or tell someone today to go cash-based, I don't know that I'd tell them to go to PT school and become a cash-based MSK platform. I believe you can get enough skill set to treat the people who are probably going to come in for cash because cash-based clients usually have a mindset of gadgets. Like they want shockwave, they want laser, they want taping, they want ART, they want they want cool stuff because I'm paying you. And you were going to pick a fight with some people. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I could go to a massage therapist. I can go to a MAT certified, which I didn't know what that was until a couple of years ago. Person, I can go to a ART athletic trainer. I can go to a chiropractor. I can go to a lot of places and get something that makes me feel good today. Well, go convince that person that what's making you feel good today may not actually be getting you better when it's consumer-driven practice. Like, I believe that's a tough sell that I'd love to be in a conference with someone about, which is, you know, when you are very consumer-focused, are you doing the best healthcare or are you doing the best consumer-driven care model? In which case, I don't necessarily think that they overlap. Like, I don't necessarily think that evidence-based medicine exclusively resides in a cash-based practice. And I'm not saying that it should or shouldn't. I'm saying that I don't know that it can. I think that if your consumer, if you're charging 200 bucks a visit and they demand shockwave and tape and ultrasound every visit, I don't think you get rid of those machines if they're willing to pay that money if you've got that idea that I'm a cash-based practice. Now, someone's going to argue outcomes is what's going to drive cash-based practice, and so you want to give the best efficacy-driven models. I would argue that oftentimes you won't keep a patient long enough to see the outcomes you want to drive if you're not giving them something shiny to hold on to when they come into the office. I remember as some students and I had... Uh, whatever company we used at the time for tape, which that's a whole completely other conversation. We only used black tape for whatever reason. We had rolls and rolls and rolls of black tape. And someone came in from that company and they left us some holiday colors. I think it was just like a promotional thing. One of them was this bright red, like shiny bright red tape. And I had maybe one roll of it and I stuck it in a drawer and it was like, who cares? And I had students and I was trying to prove the concept of placebo and consumerism of healthcare. And so I said, just watch. Do not ask anything, do not say anything, and just watch. For the next 20 minutes, I don't want you to say a word to this patient. And this lady had some weird thing going on. It wasn't that complicated. And I left her treatment session with, look, I've got this brand new tape, and it's got really cool principles and properties. And I've used it on a couple of people with, I think it was tennis elbow, their tennis elbow, and it'll work. 
but it's expensive tape. Like we usually charge 50 bucks a session just to buy the tape, but you're such a nice person. We've got students here today. I'm going to do this for free, but please don't tell anyone else I gave this to you. And went on this whole thing about how special this red tape is and don't tell other patients I gave it to you, whatever, whatever, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put it on and you're going to start feeling this way. You're going to feel this way tonight. Tomorrow you're going to feel this way. When you come back in on Wednesday, you're going to tell me, Ben, you're a miracle worker and my pain is completely gone and this and that. And, and I said nothing to the therapist after that. I said nothing to the patient after that. The patient comes back Wednesday. Oh my gosh, Dr. Ben is what she called me. You know, my pain is gone. I looked at my students and they were just like, you have to teach me this taping technique or what's so special about this red tape. And so, you know, patient's better. She's gone. She leaves. And so now we congregate with the students and they're like, you know, what? Like, what was it? How do I get this tape? How did... I said, that tape is nothing more than the black tape. It's just the red tape. And boy, isn't that a shiny, cool looking tape that I could tell her she's going to get better if I put this on. And I remember from a physician that I know here locally, whose dad was a ER doc. His dad used to stick, I believe it was B12 was red in its liquid form. He would stick B12 shots. He was an ER doctor and stick B12 into every shot he gave. And his son, who's also a practicing physician now, was like, dad, why are you putting this B12 in it? And he holds it up the vial of the, he goes, because it's red. And doesn't that look pretty potent? You know, I'm going to give you this injection and you're going to be better <laughs> compared to what he was sticking in there, which might be just lidocaine is clear. You know, it's not, it's not the same effect. And so it trickled down to this whole idea. Wow. Did I go on a tangent of consumerism and, and healthcare? <laughs> I love it. So do I believe you can do like evidence-based medicine strictly in a consumer driven clinic? I'm not so sure was kind of the end of that. So then you're asking me, what do you tell young Ben or what does young Ben do if you come back? I just think that the education we get as physical therapists, I think the majority of what we do really well sits between our ears. I think at some point in our practice, we realize that what's between our ears is what we're really getting paid for and not some McKenzie technique course I took or Mulligan course I took or Maitland or NAIOMT certification I got. It's the knowing how to treat a patient, when to progress them, when not to progress them, when to refer them on. Um, when to change tactics, when to adjust the plan of care, I think is really what we've paid for. And that's where our minds are really used well. And I don't think necessarily it's in doing a mobilization with movement or snag or, or whatever happens to be that we buy into at the moment. So to do good enough care in a consumeristic society in that kind of practice, like I don't know that you need a couple hundred thousand dollar education that's specifically regulated per state licensure, that's heavily regulated in your clinic license and where you can practice. I'd almost think it's a detriment to have those licenses to do a specific cash-based practice. Unless someone wants to argue on efficacy of outcomes, then I do think that we're probably best posed to get great efficacy of outcomes. But I've already said it's very hard to get efficacy of outcomes purely based on a consumer-type practice. So then I would say, well, what does Ben tell students today? Unfortunately, the physical therapy world may not be happy with me, but I've talked many students out of going to PT school purely on an ROI perspective. The money and time you're going to put in versus the money and time you get out. If you really like something in this field, there's other parts of the professions that you can get into in just a better ROI. If you just want to do really well in life, there's other professions entirely you can go into that have a more likelihood of a higher ROI. And if you're diligent and smart enough to go to PT school, you're probably diligent and smart enough to go to just about anything or anywhere school and do well for yourself, depending on like what you're looking to get out of your career. And I think most therapists are in it for the right reasons when they get out of school, but then somewhere around the 10-year mark are like, wow, I can't imagine doing this every day for the rest of my life because we work retail hours if you're an outpatient therapy. You're working, you know, I, my first patients in Northern Virginia where you are, I, I was seeing patients at 6.45 in the morning 
and my last patients as there until a little after nine o'clock at night, and then we have to clean up and everything. Um, not much different than when I was a student working at Chili's. You have like these retail hours, and you can only see patients during retail hours, and it takes a toll. Like all of a sudden, you're older, you have a family, you have little kids, you want to go to soccer games, you want to go to recitals. Being a healthcare practitioner who sees patients makes that very difficult. So, if I was very entrepreneurial from a young age, so I mean, I've I think started I don't know six or seven companies at this point that were my own, and I've also been involved in maybe six or seven startups. So like I knew I wanted to create value with, with the concept of passive income without having to be the person generating those dollars per hour. So I don't know that I would tell myself to necessarily do something different. I think was kind of what one of your questions is, would you tell yourself something different at that point? I really liked healthcare. I really liked working with people. I didn't want to go to med school because I hated microbiology. Um, I didn't like things that I couldn't touch and like I couldn't touch microbiology. I couldn't understand like why I was studying organic chem and all that stuff so hard when I wanted to physically touch a patient and make them better and not necessarily prescribe a pharmaceutical to make them better. So like, I don't know that I would have been a good med school student necessarily, but I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. But knowing what I know now, like if someone had some of the mindsets I had, I'd probably steer them towards like a healthcare administrator background. I probably could have gotten done some of the like changing the healthcare paradigm and healthcare models that I wanted to affect. Maybe because I was a clinician also, like it gives me a different perspective on how to change those from a provider perspective and a business acumen perspective. So part of me feels like I may have told myself, don't do this. <laughs> not because I didn't really enjoy treating patients. I still see patients on occasion, not because I don't enjoy it. I just don't like where a profession has turned in the last 20 plus years. And I feel it's a, you know, if it doesn't turn around and it is where, you know, the trajectory is purely, we get written out of benefit manuals and we become this cash only practice. And that's the norm of outpatient therapy. So fast forward a couple of years, if that's the norm, then I would take my time machine and not get into this profession. Yeah. Just stay out. Yeah. Bend the real estate agent or something. Yeah. So in terms of the, um, so you just said something there, gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly how you framed it, but you were just talking about, all right, let me just blurt this out and then maybe we'll, we'll tie it together somehow. You were just kind of, you sort of glanced off this topic that sort of touched on this idea that like reimbursement rates are, you know, changing and all that stuff. And, and I think one of the, the question that came to mind as you were talking about that is like, you know, just like I said a few minutes ago, I feel like so much of the conversation out there right now is is black. They're trying to turn a complex issue into a black and white issue. So it's like cash-based or not cash-based. It's like one or the other, right? And, and, and that's just not the right way to debate this. In a similar vein, when we talk about reimbursement rates and stuff like that, so much of the the suggested action to take is to write your elected officials. Like just start writing letters. Like that is just the... I mean, especially this time of year, man, like everybody, write a letter, write a letter, write a letter. But like, I mean, writing letters didn't work last year, didn't work the year before that. And I feel like I'm the most optimistic guy I know. <laughs> and so for me to be the anti-optimist here, you know, dare I say pessimist, like, it's like, I kind of want to bang my fist on the table and say, hey guys, listen, uh, that thing you're suggesting everybody do now, it didn't work last year, the year before, didn't, didn't work when I was a kid. And I'll tell you, it's for some reason that people just don't even get. Like, I don't think I knew this for maybe until the last maybe three years. You know, the, the CBO, which is a, a division of the government that people should become aware of, there are concepts and principles that every senator and every House member would agree to. If we, we got them in a room, you know, as divided as they are, I think we can get them to agree to some stuff. The problem is even doing something like, I'm trying to think something like real minute, enabling the remote therapy monitoring codes. Well, that has to be balanced budget neutral. 
which means I need to take away money out of Medicare somewhere else if I have an idea of how much money that's going to cost every year. Even though I could prove that downstream it has savings if used properly, meaning I don't need to see a patient as many per visits, I do less visits, which means savings, et cetera. The problem is Medicare doesn't work that way. Most insurance companies don't want to hear about downstream savings. They want to hear about this year's savings. Your actuaries are, you know, the, the dirty secret is a lot of patients don't stay on their insurance all that long. I think it's something like 2.4 years on certain plans, Medicare and Medicare Advantage is obviously higher. So part of it is there's stuff that I see therapists arguing, stuff that they want the APTA to push. And then if you actually go talk to some lobbyists and talk to some senators, not everyone has the ability to, but if they did or start asking around, they'd find out like, wow, some of the stuff that I want to get done would actually take an act of Congress to change, like an amendment to the Constitution kind of, like we're talking changes to the Social Security Act, changes that are not going to happen with a divided house. Like these are changes that probably will literally never happen. I mean, I'll be that pessimistic. Will literally never happen. So knowing that it's not even a matter that the Senate disagrees with us or the House disagrees with us or the lobbyists disagree with us, you almost have to find these alternative payment models to get around to get this done that, that skirt having to go through Congress to get it done. To echo your point, I think just writing congressmen and senators, if you talk to them, they're not obtuse to this kind of stuff. They have grandparents who have total hips and stuff. They themselves, you know, we have an old House and Senate, like they know they have really great insurance, so they don't know the pain of it, but they know to, to some extent. And um, they even can look at the things like the VA and the military, like the military model of healthcare with respect to physical therapy is an awesome model of healthcare and it's done very well. So why can't they flip that switch and do it federally for all of us? Like, because there's just stuff in our, the way that these healthcare rules were written 75 years ago have made it where Congress has passed certain acts to actually change it. And it's, to your point, to just say, we're going to change it overnight, not going to happen no matter who you write. So that's where I'd say, you know, what about a model of, I want to go to someone who's at risk, you know, your, your Chen meds, your one medicals, your group that I know down the street who I went to. I want to go to a Medicare Advantage plan. I want to go to the patients directly who have a high deductible, high copay plan and say, I will do your total hip post-operative care from home. Oh, send therapists to your home. You can come to my clinic. I'm going to offer you virtual care, remote monitoring. And the whole package is $2,000 out of pocket. And I've completely made up that number. I'd have to bring up Excel spreadsheets to tell you if I stand by that number. $2,000 out of pocket. And regionally, back to my other point of how much does your food cost? before you actually price the food. So 2,000 is completely out of a hat, 2,000 bucks. But to do that, I can't come and see you three times a week. I can't have you come to my clinic three times a week. So again, technology plays a role of how do I give you a really good experience with a lot of engagement? Engagement doesn't have to be live. It doesn't have to be in the clinic. Give you my expertise and get great outcomes and make you feel like you had a really good experience, but not the same experience as you were going to pay $5,000 for because you're a deductible to come to therapy three times a week for 15 weeks and have someone come to your home for four weeks. And I can do that without having to write my senators or congressmen. And I just need to be a little innovative, a little creative with some legal attorneys. And I need to go spend my marketing dollars, not on my cost of customer acquisition, but on how do I actually sit at the sandbox and at the table of other people who are trying to reduce costs of care who have some risk in it. There's plenty of things that people can do. I mean, that people are doing, you know, like if you actually went to some of these conferences and had these conferences for let's share innovative models that we're doing, it'd be an amazing, awesome conference. Unfortunately, our conferences are like, if I did this mechanism of therapy on a total knee, the patient got 5% better quicker, rather than like this conversation around the, the mechanics of delivering healthcare in a physical therapy world. See, 
Okay, I, I think you know this, but like, I mean, Thomas will tell me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think anybody's really talking that way. And if they are, they're not talking that way publicly because like, the, you're absolutely right. Just Well, some of it is because it's their secret sauce and they're developing and they don't want other people to know. There's, exactly. Part of it is that. I mean, there are people doing this. I could name their names. Um, they don't want you to know it because they want to get first to market on it. Uh, but, but a lot of it is your binary, do I get out of network and become a cash-based practice? Is like, they've been programmed right now to think like, insurance is awful, get out of that world, come to this wonderful world where everything's zen and you can play spa music all day of a cash-based practice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Patients go flow into your office like magic. I'm going to sound super cynical here, but uh, you know, you what you just described there, it's like, okay, so I'm going to lose some friends on this one too, but whatever. It's like, for the people that are like talking about cash-based as if it's the only way to go or the best way to go or whatever, 99% of the time, they also happen to sell a course or an ebook or something like that to help you go down that path. And the other thing that kind of comes to mind on this topic is, is that, you know, it's less important to pay attention to other practice owners and stuff like that, and way more important to pay attention to what they're doing. Because like, I'll explain this a little, a little differently. I come from a non-healthcare background. You know, I'm investing in tech companies and all that stuff. And you don't have to go far down the Google search hits on any topic to notice that like, there's a lot of growth hacking out there and content out there on how to growth hack, quote unquote, growth hack this, growth hack that. And, you know, whenever I see any of my portfolio founders doing that, I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. Consider for a moment why they're giving away this content. More often than not, it's because that technique has stopped yielding any advice or, I'm um, sorry, upside for them. So now the last thing to do with that advice is to just package it up in a blog, use it as a way to capture emails while they quietly move on to the next tactic. And then they're not going to talk about it until that one also stops giving them any yield. It's a bit of like information arbitrage. Or the yields come down to where it's, uh, you know, the, the ski slope has flattened out. Exactly. So it's just really information arbitrage. And so, you know, that's kind of what you're describing here too, is that like behind the scenes, there's a lot of practice owners that are already doing very interesting things. And I'll admit, like we know a couple of them probably just like you do too. Like we see their data and we're like, oh, that one's way different than that one. What's going on there? But then you look at them up publicly and they're kind of like either not saying anything about it or they're kind of like repackaging the same old, same old. And I, and I get it. I get it. Like if you give away the trick, everybody's doing it and you got to go find the next one. So not that uh, this is part of the conversation, but I'll just throw it out there anyway. Like if I was talking to young Ben, I mean, young Ben, you're, you know, he's probably super intelligent, way more intelligent than me, but like young Ben or whoever the, the up and coming PT is listening here, I'd, I'd kind of be like, look, rule number one in 2023 as a practice owner is, is stop paying attention to anything any PT tells you. <laughs> and what you really need to do is secret shop them or figure out from the inside what exactly they're doing to be successful. Because I guarantee you it is not the same as what they're saying publicly. I think there's some definite truth to that. <laughs> so, I know we're probably coming up on your time here and I want to be really respectful about that. But at the beginning, you talked a little bit about value-based care and how other people, the way you described it was kind of like how you discovered that there were these other physicians and stuff like that that were really succeeding with value-based care. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, you you kind of imply that it is the future of PT. And I would love for you to kind of just expand on that. So value-based care, future of PT, give me the, give me the Ben special. I think I could spend another hour and a half on this because this is what I live and breathe every day in one of the hats I wear. But there is an absolute, again, if we're trying just to get more dollars per visit, I would say it's probably not going to happen because of a lot of things beyond our control. If we're trying to reverse 
Optum's an ash, you know, Optum rules the world, probably not going to happen. But if we start going, how can I get a pool of money to smartly spend, still have great outcomes, and use different tool sets for this, which is hybrid models of care. You know, I get a patient in the clinic when they need to be in the clinic, but they don't need to be seen for four units. You know, maybe I come in for just one unit treatment when they need it, four times over a course of care, uh, remotely monitor them, do some telehealth. And how do I manage a program where I then know that my cost of delivering that care is significantly less than my revenue of delivering that care, and it's significantly less for the payer, and it's significantly less, ideally, for the patient, and then you're talking about value-based care. The part I would say is kind of important to understand is the payers are not the only ones in control of value-based care. These days, there's a lot of payviders who are payers at risk, who are more worried about value-based care necessarily than sometimes the payers themselves are. So if someone can pivot their mindset and find out who are their neighborhood people who are taking on risk as primary care providers or taking on risk, I don't know how many therapists can, out there can name the bundles, the 45 bundles that are going to be introduced to hospitals or how many therapists out there can talk about some of the changes that are coming in some of the ACO reach models or some of the stuff coming out of the innovation centers, like in Maryland, the equip model. There's a lot. Um, I'll give a shout out to a friend. Um, who's part of Signify, now part of CVS Aetna, and her job, name's Dana, is to stay on top of this stuff and understand how the federal payment systems are rewarding these kind of models. But like, how often is a therapist hearing about this? How often does it make its way through the APTA and down to, to regional sections and down to people? You know, the answer is not often and not a lot, but there's a ton of opportunity out there right now to be part of value-based models that are I'll just say MSK-centric, not necessarily physical therapy-centric. And it's just a matter of knowing about them and taking advantage of them. And to your point, if someone's telling them how to do it, like literally step one, you do this, step two, you do this, step three, you do this, chances are if someone's telling them how to do it, it's because that model's kind of already played out and they can't make any more money on it or else they would just go set up shop everywhere and they would take advantage of that. So you know, if you're waiting for someone like Ben to come on a, a webinar and tell you exactly how to succeed in value-based care, the chances are you've waited too long. And at that point, it'll be commoditized and Optum will have a name of, for it and Optum will prepackage it and repackage it to you. And then you will be getting, again, 25 cents on the dollar because Optum's managing that program and you're paying them to manage that program by taking 75 cents out of every dollar and giving it back to them. But now it's a matter of, well, do I focus my attention on how do I drive more people into the practice through search engine optimization and all the data hacks you talked about? Or do I start going to the root of the problem of why MSK costs are the largest cost for anyone in the country, uh, employer, federal, et cetera? And do I figure out why something like low back pain is 30% of the healthcare spend in that market and all spine pain is something like 40% spend of the market? Do I go and I niche down onto chronic pain and figure out why do chronic pain patients see on average 10 or 11 providers? Why are they costing something in the magnitude, I want to say 800% more than someone who doesn't have chronic low back pain to the system? And could I do an intervention strategy that may not be a solo siloed strategy, but maybe I partner with CBT therapists, maybe I partner with interventional pain management, and we create a, a wraparound program for them because maybe they're at risk, which again, not many of them are. Uh, but maybe their hospital system is at risk and we, we go through models. So there's plenty of opportunity in value-based care still in the physical therapy realm, but it's not, the groundwork is not laid out such that like 
you could go to a website and say, here are the nine models you should do today and go make a lot of money doing it. It's just turning on a different side of the brain and say, I want to market healthcare to healthcare people and not necessarily market my services specifically to the consumer. Now I get it. It's like we could talk on this for like another hour or two probably and still not figure out what to do. <laughs> just because we're coming up on time. I know you got a busy schedule here. Is there something like anything else that you feel strongly about that nobody ever asks you about out of curiosity? The answer is yes. At the end of the day, I really enjoy treating patients, getting patients better. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be more happy if I'm able to affect how healthcare delivery has changed. Like if I could change how people treat people, and I mean treat as not like you should be nice to people because you should be. I'm talking about like healthcare, how to treat people. And if I can look back one day and go, wow, I materially changed the healthcare paradigm for millions of patients. And I had something to do with that. Like that's going to be very satisfying to me more than patients. Who, like this weekend, I, I ran into two patients this weekend. Former One I remembered, one I didn't. Oh my gosh, Ben, you did this. And it, it really is heartwarming and everything. But like I would rather use my brain to affect millions of people rather than, you know, the one guy, John, who I saw this weekend who couldn't thank me enough what I did for his shoulder five years ago. Um, it's rewarding, but it's not like really where I want to be. So I don't even know if that answers your question. As far as, you know, advice to clinic owners and operators like today immediately, one of the things that I always find alarming, because I had done a lot of consulting and one of the biggest things I found alarming was um, the lack of knowledge of cash flow and knowing how much money was in each bucket. And you and I have talked about this in the past and not knowing like how much money is in my zero to 30 day bucket and 30 to 60 day bucket. At that point, I put a red flag if anything's beyond that because I've got to pay staff and rent and all that a whole lot quicker than 60, 90, 120 days out. And I might think I'm billing a million dollars a month, but if only $100,000 coming back to me in a month, if I've got an operation billing a million dollars a month, my expenses are probably, well, I'm going to price my expenses are 800000 or more a month. And in today's economy, like getting those lines of credits are not happening like they were five or six years ago. Getting access to cheap money is not like it was five or six years ago if you get access to money at all. And so you can almost be a victim of your own success. You get big enough and you don't have control on your cash flow You'll be out of business because your expenses are going to outweigh your revenue, not in a not in a cruel method of accounting, but in a cash method of accounting. And I think there's too many people looking at their accounting in an accrual method of accounting, which is, you know, I know I build this much, I know my expenses are this much, I made a balance sheet and a budget, and I'm great. I'm going to net two hundred thousand dollars per month. Yes, if you had a line of credit at near zero, you will net two hundred thousand dollars a month. But when you're 600000 in the hole that month because that money hasn't come in because you haven't done a good job of getting your money, you're going to have a world of hurt, which is why like one of the few only things I look at for my clinic on Strata is those buckets. How much money do I have sitting in those buckets at any given time? What percentage of my money is sitting in those buckets? And the second it gets higher than I want it to be, like I start panicking and going, I'm going to have to put in money to flow payroll, which, by the way, I've not put money into flow payroll in... I want to say four and a half years, because that's one of the metrics I, I keenly looking at. And it's clean claim out is clean claim, getting paid quickly, doing your work up front at the front desk, you know, right from the beginning and making sure that patients know what they're getting into and getting their proper forms and eligibility and all that is quintessential to running a practice, whether you're doing cash based practice or insurance based practice, but especially if you're doing insurance. I guess that's like one completely different than we talked about today is understanding that cash flow is everything. You can't grow without cash flow, especially this year in the years to come when cash is getting 
really tight to get hold of it. I talked to one practice owner two weeks ago. He's growing. Congratulations, he's growing. When he acquired a clinic like two years ago, he had like a 2% line of credit to do so. He wanted to acquire another clinic. It's 12% right now for the same practice owner. And he had like a revolving line of credit that was at like 1%. And it's at like eight and a half. And it's threatening to go up to, I think, to 13 and a half in the beginning of next year. And it's like a dramatic, you know, even without being an accountant, he started doing some numbers and realizing like, uh-oh, I- I'm in trouble. I have a successful practice, but I'm in trouble. And I don't know that people totally grasp those concepts. And I have right? to talk about something that we didn't talk about today. That would be like a parting conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo.